He is aging. His strength is failing him. And he's in a place, what we would like to call today a prison. Now, what do you do in a prison? What can you do? There's not much to do. And there, church, if we, if we are there in front of his cell, as we are observing him, he's just staring into space, sitting on that chair. Now, that makes me wonder, Paul, what are you thinking about? Was he thinking about the times when he was a bit younger, when he was at home, his own city, the city of Tarsus? Or was he reminiscing about the time where on the road to Damascus, Jesus just knocked him down, knocked him out, and he was blind, but then he encountered Christ, and then he came to believe in Christ? Was he reminiscing about the time when he became the great apostle, the great church planter who got to travel around cities like Corinth, cities like Galatia, Colossae, and Ephesus? Church, as we are just observing this old man sitting on his chair and his table as he stares outside his window cell, he starts thinking about the two to three years about the time where he spent in the city of Ephesus. We can read all about his adventures and journey in the books of Acts, Acts chapter 19. Where what happens was when he first got to that city of Ephesus, people didn't welcome him. He faced many oppositions, many opponents, and many obstacles. But still the seed of the gospel took, took planted and it was rooted. And there, out of it, the church of Ephesus came to be. And he loves this church. Of course he does. And so there we see he starts picking up his pen, his quill, if you will, and he starts writing. He's writing to this church in Ephesus. He needs to write to them because he knows the exact environment that he's in. Now the city of Ephesus, you can see it back here. It is a beautiful, breathtaking place. Now, this is its modern times, but back then, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a port city. It was a very famous city. It was a happening and bustling. It was, it was busy. There was much to see, much to do. It was, a, you know, it, just, it was a magnet to tourists. People just went there to visit the place. They had so much entertainment, so much so that the city even had this really big cinema to watch Avengers. And it looks like that. It could fit around 25,000 people in one seating. Now, this is the place to be. This is the place to live. It's a beautiful place to live. But Paul knows that the city is filled with idolatry, prostitution, sorcery, magic, the dark arts, potions, and incarnations. Why? Because the city is also famous for the temple of Artemis. Now this is, it's in ruins now, but this is what they think it looks like. Now the temple of Artemis, it's big. It's actually praised as one of the seven wonders of the ancient worlds. 
huge columns. It was magnificent. And if you enter that temple, in the middle of that temple, there is this huge statue of the goddess of fertility, Artemis herself, not, not from player one, Artemis. Now she looks like a mummy wrapped up from her bottom half and the upper half. I won't show it to you because it looks kind of weird, but there is breast everywhere on her top half. Now, if you walk out of this temple to the city markets, to the streets, they will be selling along these streets this little miniature statue of the goddess of Artemis, the goddess of fertility. And they will tell you, hey, if she is in your house, she is going to bless your household. She is going to make your animals more fertile and your crops will yield more. And if you're sick, if anyone in your family is sick, you know what? You can buy these potions and incarnations and we can chant a spell and you know what? Your family will be well. And so a lot of these Christians fell for that. No wonder why we find out later on in verse 14, Paul writes and he pens down, don't be spiritual babies. Don't be tossed around back and forth by the waves being blown here and there by every wind of deceitful teaching. So if I could summarize chapter 4 verses 1 to 16 for you tonight, church, I will summarize it like this. Paul, he's writing and he's telling the church, aim for spiritual maturity as you embrace diversity in unity. Now, before we break all that down, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you are here. We know that you are in this place, Lord. Send your Holy Spirit to move around this place to touch our hearts so that we know who you are and what you expect us as a church to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some more imagination. Imagine, church, we are on this, this football field. Well, really a sports oval. And there's two schools versing each other. So the first school is Oikos College versus Orange College. Some of you thought that we're going to say county, huh? And they are battling it out, not... To death in Mortal Kombat. No, they are battling it out in a game of soccer. Now, it's home ground for the Oikos team. And the orange team was the guest. And so the whistle blows. The game has started. It was Oikos' turn to, to kick off. Little Timmy passed the ball, tried to pass the ball to little Jimmy. But before that ball got to its desired target, the ball was intercepted. And without knowing, the team is, Team Oikos is on defense. And they tried their best to retrieve back this ball, but it was too avail. It was no use. And three minutes in, one of the orange team strikers, he kicks, he lobs the ball, and it's going right towards the goal. And there we have it, our goalie, Phil. He jumps, he stretches his arm as high as he can, but it was futile. The ball goes in. 
Yeah, come on, Phil. Come on, Phil. It was one nil. But hey. <laughs> one Phil, that's a good one. That's a good one. Give him a crack. That's good. But hey, Icos team, we still have hope because it's just the beginning, beginning of the game. Hey, we, we can come back, right? But no, it was an utter nightmare. Half time, 5 0. Oh, come on, Phil. People are walking up to Phil. His teammates is like, bro, what are you doing? You could have caught that ball. Why did you kick it out and give them a corner kick? And that guy, he bicycle kicked it in. You could have just caught the ball and stopped all that events occurring. Come on, Phil. Wake up, Phil. As time passes, the whistle blows again. And that marks the end of the soccer match. One team, they walk off in celebration, but the other team walk off in devastation. Team Oikos was obliterated, annihilated, 7-0. Now in the locker room, in the locker room of Oikos team, of Oikos College, Phil is just sitting there, and teammates are just coming. It's like, Phil, man, let the team down. Come on, bro. Other teammates are coming and say, man, you could have caught so many of those balls. What were you doing? Hey, you're not doing your job properly as a goalie, bro. Hey, Phil. Phil, it's all your fault. Yeah, it's all your fault, Phil. All your... You're not going to chant. Oh, this church is nice. They don't chant. <laughs> And here Phil is, he, he clenches his fist. And he looks up at the rest of the team. Even though he has a sore throat, <laughs> he squeezes out these words. You know what? Before the ball went through my legs, it went through yours. Amen. And there his friend Bryce is like, oh no, he didn't. <laughs> hey, but before the ball went through my legs, it went through yours. Now church, this is a fun made up story. But I'm telling you this to show you that the church failure is purely never on just one person. We are all responsible for guarding the goals. We are all responsible for any of the failures and success together corporately. And this is why Paul says, we are called to live a life worthy of our calling, to be completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, even though some people are so annoying, but hey, we put up with them, but we make every effort to keep the unity of this church. Now, if no one's doing that, we've got no one else to blame but ourselves. You can view your Bible in two ways when you're reading this passage. You can read, you can open up your Bible and use it as a, as a telescope. Oh, uh, yep, there's a sinner. Yeah, that, that person that wasn't humble. Yeah, uh, yep, arrogance right there. Yeah, that person wasn't too gentle. Or 
you can view your Bible when you open up your Bible as a mirror. Like what the letter of James says. You can open up like, oh, whew, I need to fix that. Okay, some of you are more aesthetic, so you'll just stare at it more. But, but for me, I scream when I see the mirror. I'm like, oh, what was that? So you can view the Bible as a telescope to look at other people's sin, or you can use it as a mirror to look at your own sin. Hey, are we being humble? Are we being gentle? Are we being patient? Are we being trying to keep the peace? Are we loving each other? Because if we're not, we've got no one else to blame but ourselves. And then Paul, he articulates some more. He articulates that the body, the church, is a body. And Christ is the head of that body. Now this head doesn't attach and detach itself whenever it runs like the Lego people. The head and the body, they are one. They share the same life. They share the same nervous system. They share the same everything. Verses 4 to 6 tells us what brings us together. We share the same spirit, the same Lord, that's Jesus. We share the same faith and we share the same baptism and the same God, the Father. Our unity with one another stems from that. Our unity is only possible because Christ is the glue. So after unity, Paul talks about diversity. Paul then, in verse 7, he says this. But to each one of us, grace has been given, as Christ has apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascends on high, he leads the captives in his train and he gave gift to men. Now, what does that all mean? That's confusing. But, but what Paul means here is he's quoting Psalms 80, 68 verse 18. And he's pretty much saying, hey, this is the picture of Christ. Jesus He's using a metaphor here. Jesus, he's like a warrior. He's like a war hero just coming back from a battle, a victorious battle. And with him along, he's dragging a whole train of bounty, of loot and of plunder that he's just won from that battle. And everyone in the city is celebrating as he ascends. Okay, so if this is the city of Jerusalem, wherever you are around Jerusalem, you will always walk up because it's on a hill. So he's walking up and everyone is cheering. And while everyone is cheering, they are amazed. Because not only is pulling this, this whole loot and plunder, he's also giving it away to the people. And they're like, wow, he's giving it away to us. Weren't these his gift? He can do whatever with it that he wants. It's his. It belongs to him. But yet he still bestows it. And this is what Christ bestows. He says he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Now, Paul is making a list of church leaders, and these church leaders, they, their role, they kind of overlap with one another, especially this part. Why does he give us these leaders? Why? This next part, you can underline it. So they can equip God's people for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So as a pastor, 
my job is not to do everything. Not to do everything, anything inside and outside of church. No, no. This is my primary focus for Oikos Church. That is to equip you. To equip the people of God for the works of God. And so you know what that means? You also have works to do. Yes, I'm a minister, but you also have ministry to do. Now don't get confused because in Christ, that's, Paul uses it around 27 times in the book of Ephesians. In Christ, that's your identity. But your gifting, that's your activity. And this is also important because we live in an age of consumerism, pro-consumerism. And sadly, some people, they treat church like shopping and they're shopping for a church and they're comparing and they're contrasting. Oh, okay, what ministry do you offer? Do you have a children's ministry for my kids? Do you have a men's group? Do you have single people in your church? Some people also treat church like a drive through Hey, I want to be in and out of here as quick as possible. I will come late and I will go home early. In and out, no. That's a food chain in America. They think that church is here to give me a pleasant experience. And they come up with all these wants. Hey, I want the music to be poppy. I want the church to have some smoke machines because how else would the Holy Spirit move around the place? I want there to be some lasers that, that Tony Stark... Bla- yeah. I want the, it's, oh man, my team switched on. They're so switched on. I want the lights to make a cross or something. And I want your sermons to be short because of my limited attention span. And I want you to make me feel better after the sermon, not to point out things in my life to make me feel uncomfortable. I don't want that. So as you come to Oikos Church, you can either treat this place as a restaurant or as a family, as a restaurant or as a home. Now, those two places are very different. Because if you come and you treat Oikos Church like a restaurant, you know what you can do at a restaurant? You can come in and already you can start whining and whinging. Oh man, look at the ambience. It's too bright or it's too dark. And you can sit down on the table and you can be treated like a king and you look at the waiter and you're snapping your fingers at the waiter to get their attention. And when they come, you can make ridiculous orders. Like, hey, I want some warm ice in my water. <laughs> or I want to have some dry soup of the day. Like, those things don't exist, but I want that. And even though the food's not really taking that long and you're already complaining, what's taking so long? You can be impatient with the waiter. And when the food comes out and you eat the food, you, you know what? You can even complain about the food. But by the end of it, you just, you know, do your part. You just pay your money and you walk out because you're just here to be served. And you treat this place as just a transaction. 
But if you come to Oikos Church and you treat this place as home, as family, it's not a business transaction, but this is family interaction time, it'd be very different. How I'm going to raise my kids, this is what's going to go down in the Nguyen clan. When, when my kid's finally out, okay, still in, in the mother at the moment. Um, oh, my kids better not say, oh, mom, hurry up. Oh, dad, hurry up. Oh, they better be setting the tables. And when the food comes out, oh, if little Judah complains about the food, mom, this is yuck. somebody's going to get a hurt real bad. And I'm not even going to tell him who, so he can guess it if it's his sister or his younger brother. I don't know. But he will be smacked. And after dinner, he better be helping washing the dishes. Because why? Hey, this is a family. And family, we all have responsibility. And in family, we're all here to serve one another, not to just be served. So church, you can treat this place as a restaurant or as home. You can treat yourself as a guest or a family. You can treat yourself as a consumer or a contributor. Christ has made us into royalties, you know, royalty, but he's also given us a role. And with that role, there is responsibility. Christ has given us a position, but with that position, there's also a purpose. That's why our church motto is a home for all, made new for its purpose. And our purpose is to build up the kingdom of God, to serve one another, to grow up in love. Amen? And I want you guys to change your view of thinking of what a church is. Church doesn't just want your attendance. Think about this. We, you don't just go to this church. You are this church. Okay, I totally understand when people ask you, hey, what church do you go to? And you say, Oikos Church. Okay, I'm not trying to get you to change the way you speak, but just the way you think. Like if, you, if someone asks, hey, what church do you go to? And you're like, I am. No, no, that doesn't work. Don't do that. Don't do that. Because church is just more than Sunday night. Because after this service, Monday to Saturday, you still are the church. And if you don't function as the church, then there will be people that will never be reached. In the Old Testament, there's um, this story about this war general. He was, trying, he, he was dying. He was suffering from a disease called leprosy. There was no cure back in that day. It, it, it's just a horrible disease where his skin is starting to rot and his fingers will, and toes and limbs will be falling off. And so he is desperately looking for this prophet named Elisha. So after months and weeks of of just tracking, you know, the wilderness, he finally finds the prophet Elisha. 
and he gets to Elisha's house and he asks Elisha, this war general asks this, this small prophet, hey, what can I do to get rid of this leprosy? And this is what Elisha says. Take a shower. No, um, go. <laughs> go wash yourself in the Jordan River. Not once, but seven times. Now this war general, he's thinking, man, I traveled so far and you're not going to make this boom, boom type of miracle like call thunder from the sky. You're just going to tell me to take a bath seven times. And so you know what this general said? He said, nah, man. Now, if you know your Old Testament well, that's his name. General <laughs> nah, man. And so he does what his name say and he's like, nah. Ain't nobody got time for that. And he's saying, plus there's other rivers back where I come from. My kingdom is more superior than your kingdom. The water's more cleaner. It's clearer, way more better than the Jordan River. So why should I wash myself for seven times? And so he walks away angry and he's traveling back home. But on the way home, one of his minions, one of his servants comes up and he says, hey boss, you know what? We traveled so far, like so far. Like he's only asking you to dip yourself in that river for seven times. Boss, you got nothing to lose except for your leprosy. Give it a shot. And so the general did what this small servant has told him. He dips himself seven times in this Jordan River and he comes out healed. And he goes back praising God. Now, why did I tell you this story, church? Both the big prophet and the no-name servant said exactly the same thing. But the general did not listen to the big shot prophet, but he listened to the no-name small-time servant. So church, there are people whom you know whom I can never reach And when you stop functioning as the church, people will miss out. People will not be reached if you stop functioning right after tonight. So we need to be the church. We need to be the salt and light of this community. And how long should we do this for? Verse 13. Until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature to attain the whole measures of the fullness of Christ. Paul now, he's talking about maturity as we embrace the diversity in unity. Now, why does Paul tell us that we need to be mature? He says, so that you would no longer be infants, be tossed back and forth by the waves, blown by the winds of any deceitful teaching, the deceitfulness and scheming and craftiness of man. So you, don't, you won't be blown around. Why does Paul tell us to mature up? Why? Because we pretty much fall for every 
theology, bad heresy there is. I've had people come to me. This is a true story. I have people come to me because I'm the pastor and they come to me and they say, hey, Vindo, yeah, you know what? What? Jesus? What about Jesus? He was married. And I'm like, to who? Mary Madeline. I'm like, where'd you get this from? From the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> oh, chicken nuggets. That's, that's a fictional books, man. Hey, Hey, Vindo, did, did you know they found, they, they found Goliath's body? Where did you get that SBS? Oh, come on. We pretty much fall for everything that, that is posted online. Just, let's just stick to the Bible and read it in its context. This is why we need to be mature. This is why we shouldn't be infants no more. In verse 15, he says, Instead, speak the truth in love. We will in all things grow into him who is the head, that is Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Because if we speak love, no, if we love without speaking the truth, then that really isn't the truth at all. And if we speak the truth but not love I'll say that all again I messed that up because <laughs> sorry I confuse myself sometimes um, okay because if we love without truth that's not really love at all and if truth without love is not really truth at all okay now now that's confusing you can listen it to it back in the podcast now, what do I mean by this? I'll give you a quick example. Now, I had a friend in my early 20s. I hanged around with him a lot. We, we played a lot of table tennis together. We, we did a lot of things together. He was a good friend. But the only thing about this friend is that he was really, really obese to a really, really unhealthy weight. And every time I see him, he's always snacking on a chocolate bar. He's drinking Macca's large Coke He's, he's always eating. And I just knew one day this guy is going to get a heart attack. Now I say I love him, but if I don't say anything to him, is that love at all? No, because love without any truth is not love at all. And so one day, I was scared. I actually said to him, Hey man, you know I love you, right? Yeah? You need to stop eating. Why was I scared? Because he was in the middle of eating KFC. <laughs> and usually you don't stop anyone eating their fried chicken. You don't do that. But the thing is, the group, we, we are eating this mega feast and we are all full and we have stopped eating, but he continued to eat and eat. And I just had to say, you got to stop, man. I, I think you had enough. You know I love you. Was I fearful? Yes. But love drives out fear. I was more, I wasn't concerned about myself, about losing a friend. I was more concerned for his health and his heart. Now that goes for the opposite. 
Love without truth is not love at all. And truth without love is not really truth at all. Here's what I mean. When you speak truth in a very cold way, in a crude way, with an intent to hurt, because someone, because they may have hurt you, and so you want to make them feel really bad as well, and so you're trying to get back at them. And if, and if you're just saying this truth to feed your ego and your pride, just to make them feel lower and you smarter, now what you ultimately do is you're actually pushing them further away from that truth that you just displayed. They're going to block their ears and they're like, nope, I'm not going to accept what you say at all. So this is one of the ways how we can test ourselves if we are growing in maturity in Christ. Is are we speaking the truth in love? And I'll wrap this up. Verse 16, it says, from the... From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up as each part does its work. Now go home and underline that as each part does its work. Now, you know what that means? If you are doing nothing, then you are stumping my growth. And if I am doing nothing, I am stumping your growth. Church, the church, each part needs to do its work for the church to grow. Because I've seen people angry with the church. They think, since I'm angry at the church, church has hurt me before, I'm never going to serve again. I'm going to withhold my gifts. Or some of you may be taking the more passive stance, oh, they already got the full team already. They don't need me. And even if they need someone, someone else can step up into hospitality or, or ushering or, or in the band. Someone else can do it. I'm just going to sit back and relax. Now I'll use this last illustration. There was once this old Scottish preacher by the name of Robert Roy McShane. And he's dealing with with people in his congregation who are stingy, who are lazy, and who refuse to, to use their gift, and they are withholding their gifts. Now, this was an average size sermon, but I'm just going to give it to you, summarize it to you in my own words in a few minutes. Now, what do you do when you face a stingy congregation who withhold their gifts? What can you do? Instead of pointing to them, Instead of pointing to them and say, hey, you're not doing this. Hey, you could have done this. You can't do that. Stop leeching off the team. My back is, is breaking because I'm always carrying the team. No, he didn't say any of that. He didn't point to any of them. But instead, he points to, to Christ. And in his sermon, this is what he says. Some of you pray to be like Christ but if you prayed that then you gotta give like him through Christ was rich for our sake became poor and if someone objects and says my gift is my own God has granted that to me fine but imagine if Christ said the same thing I won't gift you the gift of life because my life is my own why should I gift it to you then? Church, then where will we be? 
then if someone may say, but church, yes, yeah, some people are, are deserving, but the rest, they're undeserving. Why? Because they have done nothing for me. But then he says, but imagine if Christ said the same thing. What if he says, my blood is my own. Why should I spill my blood out to purchase you? What have you done for me? Are you deserving? Church, then where will we be? Then someone again angrily might stand up and says, what if the church abused my gift? What if the church abused me? I'm not going to serve because of the potential of being abused. But what if Christ said the same thing? Why should I give you my love? Why should I love wicked rebels like you? Why should I give you my grace? Because in greater truth, Christ knew that thousands and millions of people, instead of bowing their knees to His name, they will trample His name beneath their feet. The life that He gave, the body that was broken, the blood that was poured out, the love that He gave, He knew full well that it was going to be abused, despised, ignored, and mocked. And they're going to use His love to make excuses to sin more. Yeah, Jesus loves me and that's why I can do this. Because as sin gets greater, grace abounds. But you know what Christ did? He still gave. Church, as we now come to the time of Holy Communion, we are reminded of what Christ has done on the cross. Let us be a church that aims for spiritual maturity. And at the peak of that maturity is to be more like Christ. Now this Holy Communion, again, it reminds of what Christ has done on the cross, how generous He was to all. And because Christ is generous, we are generous. Because Christ has invited us, welcomed us, and served us at His table. That's why we go out and we invite friends and family. That's why when they are here, we welcome them. And that's why when we're here together, we serve one another because Christ first served us. This isn't a chore. This is a chance. This isn't no bitter obligation. This is an opportunity to grow in maturity. God bless you, church.